If we really believe that there is a, a continuity between, say, who Jesus is and what Jesus says, uh, that, that certainly should affect the, our doctrine of Scripture. Uh, or if we are actually going to read the, the Scriptures as Christian Scriptures, then uh, certainly we should take our, um, you know, take our starting point from uh, the, the hermeneutical, uh, the hermeneutics that uh, Jesus and the gospel writers and the apostles leave behind and exhibit for us. All that to say, uh, I, I don't think that uh, the doctrine of scripture is, the co controversy over is gonna go away anytime soon. But I do think if, if we as evangelicals are gonna actually advance the conversation and move forward in the discussion, we actually have to take a very hard and serious look at our hermeneutics at the task of biblical theology, and as I propose at the very end of the book, how all of that then should lead us to certain dogmatic conclusions. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. I am Ronnie Kurtz, and today we put your usual host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, on the other side of the table to discuss his new book with IVP, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel. Dr. Barrett, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. Thanks for uh, flipping the tables and letting <laughs> me uh, join you on the podcast today. Hey, we're talking about your book today. And uh, I, I just want to say I had the privilege of reading a pre-publication version of the book. Uh, started it on a flight and had a weekend trip and ended it on the flight back and was just taken back um, by the book. Really enjoyed it uh, as I've, I've communicated with you. And so just excited for you readers to to jump into the book when uh, when you can get your hands on it. It's definitely worthwhile. With that being said, this is the second part of a two-part podcast. Uh, listeners, you're definitely going to want to listen to part one as well. In the last episode of the Credo Podcast, Dr. Matthew Barrett and Sam Beerig discussed hermeneutics and divine authorial intent and census plenier, God's revelation through covenant and uh, and Christological fulfillment. So there was a lot of material there on that first episode, and we hope to give you a, uh, a theologically rich second episode here as well. So if you're okay with it, Dr. Barrett, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in and uh, start peppering you with questions. All right. Let, let's just start with this. Uh, again, the last episode, you and Sam concluded with Christ, and you have a phrase in the book, and you talked about it in the episode, the that Christ is the Christological clamp of the canon. Uh, the types and shadows promised through the covenants and the canon of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the advent of God's Son. And therefore, we have every assurance that God has come through on his covenant promises in the gospel itself. So in your book, you then explore two case studies, one from Matthew's gospel and the other from John's gospel. What do you make of the pervasive fulfillment theme in Matthew? And what does this theme say about the canon as a whole? Well, Matthew's gospel is so, so key. When we, uh, like we did in the last ep episode, uh, when we talk about the canon and, and what it is that connects uh, the canon from uh, 
Adam to, to Abraham to Moses to David and then to Christ, we argued that, well, there is not just uh, a divine author who has inspired the, the, the end product of the text, but his divine authorial intent, well, it is seen from beginning to end all the way across redemptive history. Mm. And of course, that has implications for the canon as well. So it shouldn't surprise us that by the time we open the Gospels, uh, you take a, go- uh, a gospel like Matthew, uh, fulfillment language is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only do uh, all four gospels, uh, in, in to one degree or another, have a lot to say about um, the the covenants that have preceded that point and how Christ fulfills those covenants. You think, for example, of the Last Supper and and how Jesus. Uh, the, the covenantal language he uses and the Old Testament Passover imagery that comes through in that moment. Mm. Well, not only do they emphasize that, but even the way Jesus announces himself, the way that the gospel authors cloak Jesus and various Old Testament uh, titles, uh, all of this uh, just shouts and screams that uh, Christ has come, Israel's Messiah is here just as God intended. Mm. And well, there's a lot that means a lot, doesn't it? But it, it, it's very it, the the very root of it. It means that uh, Christ is now bringing to fulf- to fulfillment the covenant promises that God Himself made so long ago in His His the canon that He inspired and delivered to His covenant people. Matthew's gospel. Every gospel emphasizes this in different ways. That's the beauty of the gospels. There's so mm. it's like a mosaic. There's so much diversity in the way that they approach this issue. But Matthew's gospel may be one of the most explicit in in this sense. He just comes out and says it. Uh, it's one of the, you know we we tend to for you know uh, someone who's considering you know Christianity or or Christ or maybe someone who's a new, new believer we tend to send them to John, which there's a lot of good reasons for that. But maybe we should also send them to Matthew's gospel because Matthew will just say, such and such happened. Jesus did such and such or Jesus said such and such. And it's like, (laughs) drum roll, please. To fulfill what That's the right. scriptures say, <laughs> to fulfill what, you know, and, and it's it, Matthew, you know, he's putting it on a, a bright red banner for you. You can't miss it. And uh, this has become, this has become known as the fulfillment theme in Matthew's gospel uh, for good reason. Yeah, the, Matthew is so helpful there in that regard. But John takes a slightly different approach than Matthew, right? Rather than telling us something happened to fulfill the scriptures, John uses all kinds of imagery and metaphors to say uh, the same. So I would love to see if you could give us some examples there. There are so, so many examples. I, I, I was overwhelmed, actually. There, there's, there's a chapter in my book, Canon, Covenant, and Christology. I devote a whole chapter just to the case, test case of, of John. And even then, I couldn't get to it all. Uh, because John just fills his gospel with imagery that that screams Old Testament, uh, mm. from the types and figures and, and shadows of the Old Testament to their their, their announcements uh, in, in the pro- prophetic literature, the wisdom literature, the Psalter. All of this then comes to bear in how John presents Christ to us. Now, there's so many ways, but one that comes to mind is John 6, in which Jesus appeals to uh, the, this language of bread and he will even talk about bread from heaven. And this is, uh, of course, goes back to the Old Testament in which Israel is receiving the manna from heaven. 
of course, they don't react the right way at all times, but mm-hmm. God is essentially providing for his covenant people. He's already given them his covenant word at Sinai, the constitution, the, the covenant uh, document uh, that they are to live by. But now each step of, of the way, he is then uh, miraculously, supernaturally uh, sustaining them from mm. through this manna from heaven. Uh, isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes on the scene, you think of uh, John 6, uh, 48 through 51, where he says, I am the bread of life. Mm. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that so that one may eat of it and not die. And then he says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Wow. Now, if you do not understand that in terms of of, uh, the canon and the typology embedded in Israel's own narrative, this sounds strange and distressing. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's going to give us his own <laughs> flesh? Uh, is my, my kids would say, gross. <laughs> what, what is, what's Jesus talking about? And so I oftentimes have to explain to my, my children, no, he's not, you know, he's not going to break off his own flesh. And have, you know, what Jesus is referring to is he, he is uh, bringing all of that imagery uh, from the Exodus mm. uh, to bear in his own ministry now as he is the true Israel, the new Moses, and we see we, we see this in Matthew's gospel. We think of Matthew two, but we also see it in John's gospel from his baptism to being sent into the wilderness to leading the people uh, up and down the mountain to to then delivering the people the word of God. Uh, you, you you think of uh, for example uh, not just this feeding, but the many times Jesus delivers the word of God to the people of God as a, as a much greater prophet. Well, all of this is pointing, pointing us to the typological fulfillment that Jesus brings to bear. This mm. is just one of the many, many ways John um, it just reveals how God's covenant words have come to, to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, whether it's the bread of life, the vine, or so many other imageries in John's gospel. Yeah, that, that, that's so helpful. Something that was fascinating to me is you move then uh, in the book to introduce eschatology. And so my question is, what does eschatology have to do with the relationship between Israel's scripture and the coming of Christ in the New Testament canon? You know, it may sound strange that in a book about the canon or the covenants or Christology that eschatology would even be mentioned. Um, But actually, if you think back to the last episode we did, uh, eschatology. We, we we tend to think talk today about eschatology as okay. When's the tribulation, or or when's the the rapture, or is there a rapture? You know, all those debates that take place, or the millennium, and all the, the, those are important discussions. However, the biblical authors thought of eschatology in, in a they 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 thought of eschatology uh, much broader than yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Or or maybe that's not the right word. Maybe we could say in a, a far more organic way. Uh, intrinsic to the way that redemptive history develops. Uh, When we see Jesus announce his coming uh, and that the kingdom is now at hand, that is eschatology. When the the apostles or the gospel writers say, these are the last days, you think of the book of Acts, for example, that is eschatology. Mm -hmm. When we talk about types and antitypes and the fulfillment in Christ, that is eschatology. 
we could go on. The point is uh, eschatology is crucial to understanding uh, not just how God has inspired this canon, but how uh, how his divine authorial intent continues and brings uh, his covenant promises to fulfillment in Christ so that it's the Old Testament scriptures. that They're not, it, sometimes we tend to think they're not, uh, say, a, adopted by Jesus in the church. Hmm. Sometimes that's the way we approach it. And then we really struggle with skeptics who say, oh, Jesus and the, the, the gospel writers, they're, they're just... Uh, they're creating this type of Jesus, and they're just adopting these scriptures. No, they're not just, uh, you know, adopted by Jesus in the church. Uh, we see that approach in, say, different cults. Rather, the Old Testament scriptures are what they are giving birth to mm. Jesus Himself, and they are the genesis of His His the, of the church and of His people. And so, there's a continuity here for all the discontinuity that may be present. There's a a very important continuity. Uh, that we dare not uh, we we dare not mess with, and so the the great we could also say this the the great divide when we look at the gospels and the tension, for example, between Jesus and some of the the Jewish religious leaders, the great divide between the the Jews who rejected Jesus and Jews who followed him comes down to this: the 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 one group did not believe Jesus was the fulfillment mm. of the scriptures of Israel. They had a faulty eschatology, mm. but the other group, based on you know the the, the foundational uh, belief that the Messiah has come, that eschatology has then been brought into the present. Well, they accepted Jesus on that very. Uh, that's at least part of the reason they accepted Jesus. They saw him as God's Messiah, uh, and, and while there might have been many qualities that say distinguish say a uh, uh, first century. Christian Jew, Jews from non-Christian Jews, the core issue was, I would say, the gospel itself. So that the, the divide was at its root theological in nature. It, it was Christological through and through and even eschatological. Yeah, that, that, that is so helpful. This is, a, this is a question I've been excited to ask you when we were kind of considering this particular podcast. But one of your key arguments concerns not just the teachings of Christ or the gospel writings, but the very actions of Christ. For instance, you call Christ the second Adam who obeys the law for the sake of our righteousness. And so the question is, does Christ's covenant obedience that we see in the scriptures, does his covenant obedience to the scriptures say something important about the scriptures? Yes, absolutely. You know, oftentimes when we think about Jesus's view of the canon, we immediately want to go to his words. And that's a Good instinct. Uh, it's a it's a very good instinct because we cannot separate who Jesus is from what Jesus says. Mm. At the same time, if we talk about well, how is the the canon confirmed? Uh, how 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 do we see it brought uh, to fulfillment in Christ? And, and and how do we maybe discern Christ's own view of the canon? Well, we we probably shouldn't approach Jesus like we would say the Apostle Paul. Paul is you know in his his epistles gets very didactic and is just going to tell us. Uh, what scripture is. Jesus, uh, sometimes he may hint in that direction, but oftentimes Jesus does just the same more indirectly by mm. his actions. So if we are paying attention, we will notice that uh, it's it's through obeying this the law, the scriptures, that Jesus actually tells us something about the scriptures. Wow. I, I argue in, in my book that if we understand the canon as a whole, 
that uh, Christ comes uh, as a second Adam, a last Adam, one who succeeds where the first Adam failed, one who fulfills all righteousness, whereas Adam, uh, the first Adam, plunged us into our original sin. If we understand Christ in the in, in this context, as I think we should, as I think Jesus himself does, well, then that gives us a very different lens when we're reading, say, Matthew uh, chapter 2, or, or maybe it's even John's gospel, or it could be Mark or Luke. Jesus, as he is fulfilling his ministry, he is, uh, he is also fulfilling the law. And as he, as he lives a perfect life of obedience to the scriptures— that he has inherited, Jesus is communicating mm. what type of authority those scriptures have in the first place. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, 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 focusing on functional Christology that way is so enlightening. That's so helpful. Uh, love that. So it, it may seem odd uh, for some readers that in a book about the canon, you have an entire chapter on Christology because uh, you really do press into this. But you argue that Christ's identity as the eternal Son of God is anything but irrelevant. Uh, in fact, if we, we can focus on John's gospel, for instance. How does Jesus' Trinitarian origin uh, further substantiate the canon's credibility? You know, sometimes when we approach the gospels, uh, even John's gospel, uh, we can tend to uh, approach Jesus and his deity as if uh you know, we, we somehow need to, to prove it as if we need to, you know, find that text that's going to, you know, demonstrate maybe we're being pushed by apologetic concerns here. That's all understandable. But at the same time, I think that if we uh, pay attention to the clues that the gospel writers leave us, especially someone like John, who has much to say on this topic, mm-hmm. we'll notice that uh, it doesn't just present us with some raw, bare, naked Christology. It presents us with a Trinitarian Christology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that, well, in fact, we see it right out of the gate. As soon as John begins his gospel, you think of John 1. John immediately sets Christ, the Word, the eternal Son, within a his Trinitarian context. Uh, and so John wants us to ask that question, well, who is this Jesus and where did he originate from? He, his origin is is not of this earth, and that leads John to then tell us, well, Jesus is, he's not just a man, he is the eternal Son of God, Mm -hmm. the only begotten Son from the Father from all eternity. And for this reason, John, whether it's John 1 or you think of, say, John 5, John 5, 26, for example, again and again, Jesus or the gospel writers will allude and sometimes directly refer to Jesus's origin from the Father and and not only for the sake of the economy of salvation, not only in terms of Jesus being sent by the Father, um, but but more ultimately to Jesus's eternal origin from the Father as as the Father's begotten Son from eternity. Now, this is incredibly important. It may seem like, well, isn't this irrelevant to something like canon and covenant and all that? Actually, it's incredibly important because if this if Jesus is who he says he is, then the type of authority uh, from which he speaks is none other than than divine authority. Hmm. Uh, what he says about the canon, uh, the Old Testament scriptures that he that that the the, uh, the Jews have inherited, uh, what he says about his own speech, which he oftentimes reflects, usually in tension with the religious leaders, reflects on his 
his own speech and the credibility of what he is saying, all of that bears a far greater authority than, well, more often than not, the the skeptical religious leaders want to grant him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and any readers who are familiar with any of your past work are not going to be surprised to to find that this book has a very Christological and Trinitarian shape to it. And that, that was one of the things I appreciated, actually. And I kind of want to press into that a bit uh, in, in your book. So you, th- this book, Canon Covenant Christology, is in Dr. D.A. Carson's New Studies in Biblical Theology series. But one of the things I love about you, Dr. Barrett, and something I was hoping to see is uh, at the end of the book, you don't leave the discussion just in biblical theology. Uh, you kind of expand past that. You, you push forward to a systematic and dogmatic proposal. So you claim that evangelicals need to think about the canon and their doctrine of inerrancy in particular for uh, more dogmatically, even, even Christologically. They need to think about um, those, those things in a more dogmatic and a more Christological way. And so I want to back up just a minute and ask you this question. Are we evangelicals a bit dogmatically malnourished? I think I know your answer here, but are we a bit dogmatically malnourished? And has that shown up in our battle for the Bible over the years? Well, yes, yes is all the way around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The more I write, the more I become convinced that for going forward, evangelicals need more and more a strong dose of dogmatics. Amen. And I don't think we should be embarrassed to say that in a book on biblical theology either. Uh, When we look at our history as evangelical Christians, uh, it's a history to be proud of, but it's also a history that that we need to uh, maybe have some concerns over. Uh, When we look at the last several decades, maybe even the last 50 years, uh, we've done a really good job of, you know, arguing about specific texts, uh, trying mm. to defend the credibility of, of say, the Old Testament, uh, you know, even giving <clears throat> theological arguments for the inspiration of Scripture and so on. However, we tend to be suspicious or have a bit of an allergy towards taking the next step towards dogmatics. Uh, if you want to see this pointed out in a very painful way, all you have to do is read any number of Bartian scholars. Yeah, that's right. Because they are very proud that, uh, stemming from Karl Barth himself, they have a theological, uh, even a dogmatic argument to make for their doctrine of Scripture. And so because of their understanding of Christ, uh, they draw certain conclusions for their understanding of Scripture. And they look at us as evangelicals and they say, well, uh, despite all your arguments, despite all your focus, uh, nevertheless, you haven't really given us a theological argument, let alone one that has anything to do with Christology itself. Now, let me just be clear. Uh, I am no Bartian. In fact, <laughs> I in this book, I give uh, a little bit of a critique of Bart himself and uh, the neo-Orthodox view, as I as I do think there are um, there are problems uh, to, to recognize with it. Nevertheless, I do think that uh, they are onto something when they recognize that uh, our arguments have not been very theologically driven. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we, we've been able to focus on, uh, on the text, but have we taken a step back to see how does uh, our biblical theology, how does the entire canon how, how does one doctrine connecting to another doctrine, how does all of that come to play in our defense of Scripture itself? 
Now, I, I go on in the book to, to argue that we have to be careful here. I, I warn against using uh, the hypostatic union as a, an analogy for the inspiration of Scripture. I think there's problems with that. Yeah. Nevertheless, the point I try to make is if we take Jesus seriously, uh, some of the things we've already mentioned in terms of who he says he is, uh, where his divine origin is from, his Trinitarian origin, what he thinks of the canon, not just by his words, but by his actions— I argue, I think we actually have a stronger case to make uh, for our doctrine of Scripture than the Bartian does, and one that's even more Christologically grounded. Mm. Uh, because at the end of the day, I don't think we can separate Jesus and his words. Uh, in fact, I would go so far to argue that uh, the, the Bartian hasn't uh, taken its doctrine of Scripture Christologically enough, that wow. if we if we understand who Jesus is and what he is saying, uh, then we will not segregate his words from his very own person. Yeah, that 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 is so good. And um, your distinctions there in the book on on Bardian understanding of a dogmatic understanding of scriptures and how evangelicals can proceed in having a dogmatic understanding of scriptures is so helpful. Well, let me just conclude the podcast this way, Dr. Barrett, with with a, a question for you. Any final words before we sign off to the reader? You know, one thing I would say in, in terms of the book as a whole is, you know, this is a, a book that uh, may seem uh, academic in many ways, but it really is at its heart, it, it really is central to the, the the topic is central to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, as I argue in my the very last chapter, uh, if we really believe that there is a, a continuity between, say, who Jesus is and what Jesus says, uh, that that certainly should affect the our doctrine of Scripture. Uh, or if we are actually going to read the, the Scriptures as Christian Scriptures then uh, certainly we should take our, um, you know, take our starting point from uh, the, the hermeneutical, uh, the hermeneutics that uh, Jesus and the gospel writers and the apostles leave behind and exhibit for us. All that to say, uh, I, I don't think that uh, the doctrine of Scripture is the co- controversy over is going to go away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But I do think if, if we as evangelicals are going to actually advance the conversation and move forward in the discussion, we actually have to take a very hard and serious look at our hermeneutics, uh, at the task of biblical theology, and as I propose at the very end of the book, how all of that then should lead us to certain dogmatic conclusions. Yeah, that, that's so helpful. Well, thank you so much again for letting me be on the, the show with you today. Uh, listeners, just one more time, uh, we've been talking about Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel, published by IVP, and you should be able to pick it up Uh, anywhere books are sold and be sure to grab it and work your way through it. Thank you again for listening and you've been uh, with us at the Credo Podcast. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.